Well, happy Easter uh, once again from the Ellis home. And special thanks to those who are making this possible uh, by uh, handling everything relating to the live stream. We're very thankful for that. Our passage this morning uh, is 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 3 through um, 8. I'll be reading that, referring to some of the other verses later on, but we'll just read that at this time. And Paul wrote uh, 1 Corinthians just 20 years prior to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Many things were fresh, not only in his mind, but the minds of, of the first hearers as well. So this is a current document uh, relating to the death and resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. This is God's word, and join me, please, in prayer. Holy Spirit, you have caused these words to be written. We thank you for their truth, their weightiness, their beauty, their glory. And we ask that as we absorb this word at this time, um, you would change us by it. You would assure us of the significance of the death and the resurrection of Jesus for us in life-changing ways. Humble us. Unclog our stuck ears. And let us hear what you have to say to the church in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, happy Easter. Um, Christ has risen. Um, He has conquered death. And yet in this COVID moment, uh, fear is all around us. Fear is all around us, but it does not need to be inside of us. Uh, People who usually try to ignore the inevitability of death simply can't in these days. It has to do sometimes, I think, with the kind of death that is brought about. It is a painful death. One survivor from New York was quoted as saying, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But it's also the highly contagious nature of it as well. You get it from surfaces, you get it from from droplets, from our mouths. It is it is easy to catch. And it, finally, it's an equal opportunity disease. It, it favors no race, uh, no age, no gender, uh, no nation. In fact, uh, just in recent hours, um, the United States has passed Italy as the country in which there have been the most deaths. It's a sobering time, a time where many are afraid. And yet it is a great time 
to remember the risen Christ. And my purpose this morning is to lay before you that the risen Christ changes everything about our virus-sickened world. The risen Christ changes everything about our virus-sickened world. Now, the passage that we'll be looking at here in 1 Corinthians 15 is likely um, an early creed that would have been recited in the churches, and it is what the church then believed and what the church always has believed. Listen to what Paul says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That, That creed, that basic Christian truth, is made up of several things. And we are, Paul calls us here to keep first things first, as of first importance. Christ died for your sins. Christ was buried. Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So first of all, Christ died for your sins. This message by many today is received as very judgmental that anyone would have the temerity, the audacity to label anything as sin. We don't need a savior. Everybody ought to just chill out a little bit. Today's wisdom, as a matter of fact, is that the the highest good, the thing of most importance today, is one's personal freedom to be true to oneself. And the greatest sin, if you want to even use that label, is not being true to one's feelings, one's desires, one's purposes. And Paul would say, to us today, not much has changed. In the early part of his letter, he said this, the word of the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, that is required to bring about the merciful forgiveness of God in him, the word of the cross is Folly to those who are perishing. Many would say the same thing today. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now I want to move back from the Gospels and even the Epistles here, all the way back to the prophecy of Isaiah, to lay out before you a little bit of what it means to say that Christ died for our sins. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase Isaiah 53, verse 11. And and it says that the servant of the Lord bears the iniquity of God's people. By the anguish of his soul, the Lord is satisfied. The righteous one will make many to be accounted righteous. And this refers clearly, obviously, to Jesus, the righteous one who was to come. And in his death, he died for your sins. He would make many to be accounted or reckoned to be righteous or acceptable to to the Lord. This is called substitutionary atonement. Atonement uh, at one meant... Uh, at one meant our becoming reconciled to God, joined to God through Jesus Christ, and reconciled by a substitute. And so it is the glory of being washed in the blood of Jesus. Christ died for your sins. But Christ also was buried secondarily. He was buried. He was, he was taken by a wealthy man uh, who provided his tomb. It had never been used before. Uh, uh, Jesus' body was put in that tomb. It was sealed with a huge rock over the opening. And in that tomb, the body grew cold. It grew stiff. 
It was not a swoon. It was not a hoax. He was really dead. A missionary to Papua New Guinea many, many years ago spent weeks uh, teaching the people there on those islands about Jesus, about the great teacher, the Son of God. He would explain how how God had sent his son uh, to be the teacher, but that finally one day uh, his son was sacrificed. He was crucified in a horrible way. Um, He was brutally beaten. He was uh, placed upon a cross, nailed upon that Roman cross. And the people there uh, were, were grieved and that he was dead in that tomb. And only later did the missionary come back and finish the story with the resurrection. And, and the people who were a very a reserved bunch, uh, they became so excited. Joy filled their hearts and, and they were so excited in the resurrection of Jesus that they, they stood up and they danced for joy. And they literally put the missionary on their shoulder and walked him around like a football coach would be paraded by his players after a huge victory. Excited about the fact that the one who died and the one who was buried was now raised on the third day. Literally raised on the third day. Not simply the idea of Christ, but the body of Christ. Not just the spirit of Christ and the spirit of love, but the body of Christ. And this is so significant for multiple reasons. I'm just going to mention two right now. The scripture says Christ died for our sins. We've said that in order that we would be and he would be raised for our justification to indicate God's satisfaction with the atoning death of his son and the guilt then of our son of our sin would be would be extinguished, would be would be expiated. The second thing is that in the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, we were united to him. And when he was raised, we also were raised with him, as the scripture says, to newness of life. So there was an overcoming of the guilt of sin and overcoming of the power of sin. Both of those incredibly important for us to be able to revel in, delight in, as God's people, Christ was raised on the third day for our justification and also to bring us into newness of life. Now, Paul, recognizing that many uh, could be suspicious of such a message, skeptical of such a message, he begins to enumerate that there were witnesses to the resurrection. I think of the words of uh, our associate pastor at Faith Church, Andrew, uh, last Sunday evening, he imagined the scene of people speaking with co-workers or those in their neighborhoods, and the question would come up of Easter, and, uh, and, and a question could be asked, could you really believe that a dead man could be raised to life? I mean, get real, get serious. Well, Paul takes that very seriously, and, and he cites two clusters of witnesses for our, our Consideration at this time. First of all, the scripture foretells with amazing accuracy the the death and the eventual resurrection of Jesus. Written 3,000 years before this time, nearly 3,000 years before the writing, uh, before our time now, um, Isaiah says this that, that, that this 
this servant of the Lord would be cut off from the land of the living. He would be removed from among those who are alive, and he would be placed in a rich man's grave. But then it goes on to say that after atonement had been won for God's people, uh, that, that this servant would see his offspring, and the Lord would prolong his days. That's only one scripture, but speaks powerfully and directly to the resurrection of Jesus many, many years later. And then there were many eyewitnesses. Uh, this scripture tells us that, that uh, Jesus appeared to the twelve. He appeared, first of all, to Cephas, Peter, and, and then to the twelve, and then to five hundred at a time. Could consider this written just 20 years after the crucifixion, and it's as if he's, he's daring us to go track down those who are still alive of that 500, probably at least 400 or so, who were there, who saw Jesus, who remember, could remember that. And if you were to ask them, they would tell you, yes, I saw him. And then Paul gives his own testimony on his way to Damascus, uh, on that Damascus Road experience, where he saw a light from heaven that knocked him down, the light of the glorious presence of Christ. And then Paul heard a voice, and those who were with him also heard a voice, saying, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, even as he was persecuting the church of Christ. Well, are you on the fence? Keep in mind that this is one of the most well-attested events in antiquity. There is strong documentary evidence as well as eyewitness evidence. And Paul says this is more than worth considering. It is worth trusting. Right now I want to consider, because Christ is risen, as I've said, everything changes. This is the so what of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Jesus is identified in the scriptures as being the prophet, the priest, and the king. Those were Old Testament offices that were, were fulfilled by a variety of people, by, by Aaron, by, um, by um, Samuel, uh, by King David. Three offices in, in typical form uh, in the Old Testament but he, he now, Jesus now, continues them, not only in his, in his walk across the earth, but also in his exalted state. And what I want us to do is look at several passages later on in this text and see how Jesus fulfills for us, so what, right now, the office of priest and then prophet and then king. Uh, look with me at verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus fulfills the office of priest now in his exalted state in heaven. And he says, the Lord says, you are not in your sins. Look, look with me at the way Paul phrases this. And if, it, and if Christ had not been raised, if he had not been resurrected, your faith would be futile and you would still be in your sins. But Christ has been raised, and so we can put it in the very in the very strong form. You are not in your sins. Those of you who are trusting in Christ, you're not in 
your sins. Remember what the resurrection sealed and accomplished. The guilt of your sin is removed. And the power of sin is broken. The guilt is removed in Christ and the power of sin is broken. We are made alive and renewed by him. But life often doesn't seem that way. If you were to bore down into your soul and seek to answer this question, who are you? What would you find deep down, a place hidden from most other people and often hidden from yourself as well? What would you find? It is dark, it is murky there, and I suspect that many feel a sense of guilt and a sense of powerlessness. And we sort of back that up, we prove that by easily bringing to mind things that we have done in our own experience that we know have been wrong, even wrong against God. And so we are, are even though we may be believers, Trusting in our guilt removed and the power of sin broken, we can still be having a personal identity based on our experience and our feelings. One ancient writer put it this way: While we are made new, while we are still, while we are, are even as Christians, we have been renewed. The writer puts it this way: We can still feel an annoyance from the flesh. There is a smoldering cinder of evil that remains and the desires of that leap forth to allure you to sin. Not a very favorable way to describe ourselves, but we recognize that that is a decent description. So each of us, we could say, has cinders, uh, little tiny pieces of coal that can can spring into life if enough oxygen is pumped onto them. What are, what are your cinders that so easily can elicit and, and produce your own disobedience? Maybe things that you look at and you covet. Maybe things that you steal. Maybe it is a heart of boasting. Whatever it is, remember that you have a priest in heaven. A priest, Jesus, who is praying for you. An exalted priest who is, as the scripture says, interceding for you. And as Hebrews 7 says, he saves perfectly all those who come to God through him. And so as Jesus is praying for his, for his death and his resurrection to change the way you look at your own failures and change the way you are even able to consider your power or ability to obey the Lord. Um, Jesus is praying that you would put your entire faith and trust in him and that you would not, therefore, condemn yourself. But the writer went on to say this, the one that I was quoting earlier, that the struggle that we have between hearing and believing this glorious gospel and yet sometimes functioning, even if it were not true, he says even that struggle gives us an exercise Better to learn our own weaknesses. Better to realize where we might be depending on ourselves rather than upon God. 
Jesus is your priest. You are not in your sins if your trust is in him. Okay, so what is the Holy Spirit up to? Believing um, in Christ and not your own experience. Start with that. Trusting in what Christ has done and not in your own experience. We could put it this way. The blood of the Lamb, which takes away the sin of the world, is more powerful than your feelings or your experience. You are not in your sins. And that reality gives great humility to the Christian. Joy and humility. Joy in the mercy of our high priest and humility before him. Far more honest and capable of acknowledging our need for him. A priest then makes us happy in our strong priest. You're not in your sins. Secondly, Jesus is the prophet. He is the prophet who even now lives and speaks to his church. And this is the message that he gave through Paul, and it is the message to us as well. In verse 22, um, For as in Adam, because of Adam's sin, in Adam all die, so in Christ shall his people, shall all be made alive. Now, a prophet reveals truth that would not be evident to us otherwise. He reveals God's truth. He speaks God's word to us. Not often what we would expect, but certainly true. So let's consider this. This uh, COVID virus is often deadly, not always. Some are resistant to it, even asymptomatic, that is, showing no sign of the disease, no cough and no fever, and no constricted lungs, and yet having the disease. And that's very different from the disease that is inherited by all in the world through Adam's first sin. Uh, There is a residual effect. We are all infected, and it is deadly in all cases, all of us will in fact die. And that causes great fear for many. It should cause great fear for all. And yet the gospel says, while we are born in Adam, by a transfer of God's grace, we can be united to Christ. And so his resurrection becomes ours and all in him will be made alive. And so the resurrection of Jesus begins the reversal of Adam's curse and restoration has begun. As as Jesus said to uh, Martha at the tomb of uh, her, her brother Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Though he die, yet shall he live. And so Easter is a wonderful time, an important time during this pandemic to speak of the life that Jesus provides through his resurrection. And so what is the Holy Spirit up to here? What is the Holy Spirit teaching his church in these days of the COVID-19 disease? I think it is perhaps to be even more serious about this division between are you in Adam or are you in Christ? 
And we see people in Adam. They are on a treadmill, uh, ultimately going nowhere, no matter how shiny, no matter how slick the ride, going nowhere. And yet crisis changes people. And I think for the church, it will be a matter of, of speaking more readily about Christ and the certainty and the joy of eternal life that ironically starts now and carries us through our physical deaths into an eternity with Christ himself. So what is God up to as the prophet? Helping us realize even more wonderfully and powerfully and deeply the significance of his death and resurrection for us and for the world. Well, Jesus is also the king. And we submit to his rule as king. He is king over all of history. And I want to read several verses here, uh, verses 24 to 27, that explain the role, the function, the reality of Christ as king, present king, exalted king, uh, even now. Verses 24 through 27. Uh, well, back up a little bit. Uh, Christ is the first fruits. Uh, and then at his coming, those who belong to him, all others raised up along with him. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in submission under his feet. Now this says clearly that Jesus rules over all of human history for his glory. That every power is under his authority. And that must include COVID-19. Time magazine had an article uh, recently um, with a title something like this: "Christianity has no answers for the coronavirus, and it isn't supposed to." Well, any any child who has grown up uh, in the church can respond uh, to that title. Uh, by remembering Shorter Catechism number 17, the answer which is the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. There is an explanation, a very clear and comprehensive explanation for this virus. God's good creation has been corrupted in every molecule uh, by the sin of the first Adam. And so we know where pain comes from. We know why we suffer. We know why the world groans. And the scripture goes on to say that we can even expect there to be famine and war and pestilence. Children, do you know what pestilence means? It's a big word. But it simply means the deadly, a deadly epidemic disease. We can expect famine and war and the Black Plague and the Spanish flu and COVID-19. So what do we learn from this? That in COVID-19, God shows us his holiness. He shows the world his holiness and that he will one day judge it. 
In fact, you could say that COVID-19 is an early tremor of the judgment that is, will come at the end. We have replaced the worship and adoration of God, the Creator, with a host of God's substitutes in our lives. Pete Lilbeck, the president of Westminster Seminary, uh, in, a, in a, a podcast recently described this uh, COVID-19 as an idol destroyer, an idol destroyer. I think that's a great description because it exposes the idols of our day as weak and ineffective. Well, we don't have idols, do we? Well, let's think about that. We can find security and wealth. We don't need God if we have enough wealth, if we have a strong economy that we can trust in. Uh, if we have healthy and growing pension plans, we're fine. So we think. The pension plans have blown up in these past few days. We boast in our health. And yet anyone can be struck down. We are proud of our self-dependence, our independence from God. And we expect that we can manage our lives the way we'd like to and even determine our own future. And we have seen that that is, that is ridiculous. That is absolutely... In January, early January, who in the United States would have even considered the possibility of life being what it is now in April? It would not come to anyone's mind. And some of us, as we hear and consider these things of God's authority and sovereignty, we may defy God and we may say, if this God is supposed to be good, then he really is supposed to give me what I want. And we might say, who does he think he is anyway? Yes, he is love. But at the same time, he is light. And in him, the scripture says, there is no darkness at all. That means that God, who is the God of light, even in love, exposes our guilt so that we can come to his mercy. Remember that today, as awful as it is, is, is merely an early tremor of final judgment. So the unbeliever can learn from this, from COVID-19, that God will in fact judge the world. But what about for the Christian? The Christian um, can see even in COVID-19 God's love and mercy. What do I mean by that? That God uses the tragedies in our lives, the difficulties in our lives to sanctify us to uh, bring about moral change in his love and mercy. He sanctifies us even through this disease. Because we too, as believers and followers in Jesus, we too can trust the weak gods of our age. We too can demand that we have a certain level of health and wealth and well-being and security in the things that we we, we pad our nests with in this life. But by his grace, by his, listen to me, by his grace, he smashes your idols too. By grace, he smashes my idols too. So what is the Holy Spirit up to? Jesus is our king. Even now reigning king. What is the Holy Spirit up to? What is he doing? 
with us in the church. Well, a question that I've been pondering much these days is how will he use this crisis to change us? I think without sounding, without seeking to sound simplistic here, I think one thing that he will do for us and for our children, uh, that he would deepen within us a love for himself rather than an over-attachment to the things in this world. Find in him who is full of mercy and full of grace and full of tenderness and as we saw last week, full of gentleness for us. That this is a Christ, this is a God whom we can trust in no matter what's happening, no matter what comes your way. You can trust him and you can surrender your heart in love for this Christ. One of the consequences of that is that we'll be far more prompt, I think, in speaking of him to others. To tell others of what he has done for us in transferring us from being those in Adam to being those sharing his resurrection in himself. Well, children, perhaps you've grown up in the church. I, I can't see you right now, but I see I see you where you sit normally in our congregation. And, and, and you've perhaps grown up in the church. Um, you, you have maybe thought that being a Christian is doing all the right things to please your parents and perhaps even hopefully to please God. And, and we can get confused about what it actually means. I think kids especially can get confused about what uh, the gospel, what the gospel of Christ really is getting at. And, and that is giving Jesus life for you to remove the guilt of sin from you and give you the power of obedience in himself. And when you get that about him, you love him and you want to serve uh, this risen Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, how we thank you for um, the clarity of your word. It may be shocking, but it is clear. And ultimately it is beautiful. And it is a place of safety and a place of glory and a place of beauty. And so we pray for your people today. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would... Um, glorify in our hearts by your Holy Spirit our resurrected Christ in whose name we pray